Technology. I am Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health. I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Vanek from the University of Toronto. Haley, how you doing? I'm good, thanks, Matt. I'm in my office, which is exciting. It's a change of location for me. And this is your first time in being in an office in three years, right? <laughs> I wish. Usually I record from the comfort of my home, but but today I had to do some teaching. So, you know, that's how the schedule worked out. Do you remember the first time you went into the office after the pandemic and what that was like? Yes, I remember wearing my mask, purelling my hands after touching my own handle for my door, keeping my mask on in my office. Yeah, I remember all those things very vividly. You? Oh, I just remember being confused as to who all these people were. Was I supposed to talk to them? What is that giant ball of light in the sky? That was weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. You forget. And getting dressed in real clothes, packing a lunch. Packing a lunch is something that I never realized how much of a nuisance it was. Oh, such a nuisance. You know, you stop doing it. You can eat out of the fridge for a while. But yeah, those lunches are annoying. Yeah, I shop now and I just unload all my groceries into my office. (laughs) Your desk drawer. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Makes it much easier. It's very convenient. Okay, Haley. So now you have to answer the question that I had to answer last time, which is tell me one thing that you learned since our last recording. I don't know why this is such a hard question for me. I I guess maybe I I just do the same thing over and over again and, and don't learn much. But... I will say, so I'm tipping my toes into curriculum development and course development, Mm -hmm. and I'm learning about how many formal models there are and how many actual researchers there are that their whole career is focused on course development. And so I've been learning a lot about that and best practices for creating new courses, best practices for assessment of students. So I've, I've been learning a lot about that lately. So that's pretty cool for me. Do you find it weird that one of the primary responsibilities that we are tasked with as faculty members is teaching? And we have entire methodologies that we employ to test out the effectiveness of health-related interventions. And we don't employ those same methods around determining what is effective teaching. Yeah, People will propose some new idea around how they're going to teach their course, so flipped classroom or whatever it is, and people either love it or they hate it. And then they just go and do it and just see what happens. And, you know, we don't actually do any kind of formal evaluation. Some places do, but we don't really. I just, I always find that weird. Yeah. I mean, there there's a whole field of research, you know, educational researchers who publish papers on best practices and this kind of stuff. But I agree for the most part, it's taken for granted that faculty just know how to do this. Between that and knowing how to manage a budget, I feel like my actual PhD is used a fraction of the time for research compared to what I spend the majority of my time doing. Oh, see, I think it's the opposite. I think we take it for granted that faculty don't know what they're doing when it comes to teaching, and therefore, we're not going to formally evaluate them in a way that would actually tell us whether or not the things they're doing that are working, because then we'd actually have to recognize that we need to train people to be effective teachers. Yeah, I guess... I think we're saying the same thing, which is that people need more training in this domain. We just don't know how to actually assess it to help them get there. Is that similar? Well, yeah. I just think the assumption of whether we assume faculty know what they're doing when it comes to teaching or we don't assume they know what they're doing is a little different. That's fair. But I think in general, any faculty at any career stage could benefit from learning some of these best practice approaches. I've I've been delving into that a little bit. All right. So let's get into the topic for the week. So we're continuing on in our series on modern epidemiology, the textbook that we definitely believe is going to be made into a feature-length film at some point. Audiobook first and then feature-length film. Yeah. And we are continuing 
on today with chapter 18, Stratification and Standardization. And I want to preface this conversation with the fact that this is a chapter that, for obvious reasons, doesn't lend itself well to a podcast conversation. But we're going to try to focus on things that we think are general meta points. And we're not going to get into, obviously, reciting formulas for how to standardize rate ratios and risk ratios. That sounds so fascinating. Your voice just telling me the formulas. I, I think it would really be a page turner. Summation of A times B <laughs> divided by M squared. I like it. I like it. Yeah. But I, I agree with your, your overall point that there are some conceptual topics to discuss in this chapter that we will focus on rather than the formulas. I think it'll be a better use of everyone's time. Yeah. And I just want to note, we're skipping chapter 17, which was on categorical statistics. And I only bring that up and we've skipped around a lot and we we're not intending to cover every chapter, but I just point that out because chapter 17 would be where it goes into a lot of the crude analyses that I think we can assume that the listener has either read or has familiarity with. I think most people who are reading modern epidemiology probably don't spend a ton of time on that chapter, but may use it for reference. But we're going to focus on the beginnings of adjustment-based approaches, stratification, and standardization. Yeah, I I think that's uh, the right point. And if you need a refresher or a reminder, go back and, and check out chapter 17 before if you're confused. So I want to just sort of summarize basically what I think are the key points of this chapter before we get into the specifics. And then Haley, you can add in if you think that I miss anything. But I would say the general ideas of this chapter are one, getting into the importance of stratification-based approaches. They then walk through the difference between pooling and standardization. They talk about mantle Hensel approaches versus maximum likelihood approaches. And then you get your laundry list of all of the formulas for the different ways to standardize and do mental Hensel adjustment for relative risk, you know, incidence rate ratios, risk differences, blah, 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 and all the variance formulas to get your confidence intervals. And so just to start us off, Haley, how many of these, and I, and I ask this as a serious question, this is not a joke, but my it's a, it's a constant back and forth that I have with our doctoral students. How many of these formulas would you say you have memorized? So I, in that, I would include the formulas for standardization and pooling mental Hansel will say, and then the variance formulas for eventually calculating a, say, a wall-based confidence interval. So at some point when I was a student, I had memorized these, at least because I think it's a quick and easy way to actually understand what you're doing, or rather than remembering a whole bunch of words to describe standardization, you can just memorize a formula as long as you know the pieces of it. Once you've memorized it, you understand what it's doing. So I do remember having memorized those. Today, I probably am a little bit rusty. I don't think I I ever memorized the variance formulas. What about you? Or what, what's your debate? Well, I'll come back to that. But now that you've said that, I would now like you to recite for me from memory. <laughs> no, I'm not going to make you do that. I'm rusty. I told you. No, fair enough. So the debate that I have is I feel strongly, I would say it's lessened over the years, but I feel, and I tell doctoral students all this time, that as you're studying and preparing for your qualifying exams, you should have memorized the, you know, the basic formulas for standardization for mental Hensel and the variance formula preferably for risk ratios, rate ratios, and risk differences so that you could then, and obviously know how to calculate a a wall-based confidence interval off the top of your head. Not because I think there's any value in actually memorizing. It's not that I think that, you know, we should all have these things committed to memory so that we can perform them on a test or even necessarily use them. But because I think in the process of memorizing those, I think you learn what those formulas are and what they're doing and why they matter. So for example, when it comes to 
standardization, I think it's really helpful to be able to really understand that process of what standardization is doing so that it, it allows you to adjust for that variable that you're stratifying by. When it comes to the variances, I think it's really helpful for understanding those so that you understand what drives the variances, that it's largely the cases, the number of events that you have that's driving that formula. So it, to me, that's just really important part of senior epi level training. Again, not because I ever think you're going to use it as you're going to write out these formulas by hand and use them, but because I think you learn as part of that process. Yeah, that's I, I agree. And that's where I think the value of, of memorizing some of these formulas are. I also do remember calculating things by hand using these formulas and going through the examples in this modern epi, or the, I guess the prior versions of modern epi, using those formulas. How did they get this number in the table? And, and I always appreciated how much that helped my understanding. You can read three pages on this topic, or you can do some calculations with a formula. And for me, I understand it better, easier, more completely if I'm doing those calculations. The math isn't hard, but it really helps understand the concept better. Yep, I would agree. And so the other piece of that is I suggest that people learn the formulas in their more intuitive forms. You know, a lot of the formulas, whether it be the standardization or, or pooling based approaches formulas or the variance formulas can be written in different ways. Mm -hmm. But I think some of them are actually intuitive to instructing you what they're doing. So for example, like standardization, you can do the observed over expected. And that works for some people in sort of understanding what you're doing. To me, I like to see it in the full form where you're looking at the weights multiplied by the numbers of the cells, because then you can see what the weights are and understand better what you're standardizing to. So I just think there's value in learning those formulas in their more intuitive forms. Yeah, I think this, some of this might depend on the, the individual and how they best understand it. Some students, maybe myself included, get a little intimidated by the really long formulas. And so if you can understand what it's doing without delving into to that kind of stuff, I don't necessarily think it, there's a blanket rule for which formula works best for everyone. No, I would certainly agree. But I mean, take the odds ratio. I mean, you can do the cross product ratio and it's a really quick way to remember it and learn it. But as we've talked about earlier, the, the cross product ratio, the opponents of the cross product don't actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. And so intuitively, you're not really learning much. Whereas if you learn it as the, the pseudo risks calculation, then you can relate it back to what you're trying to get to, which I think is typically a risk ratio or an incidence rate ratio. I know there are people who disagree with that, but that is that's my view. And therefore learning it that way, I think it's no more complicated. The formula is no more complicated, but it is more useful for learning. No, I, I agree with that. And I think that the formulas in this chapter are not to be avoided. I think you need to like embrace them and sit for a while and figure out exactly what they're telling you because it, it's very helpful to understand the concepts. I don't think you can understand the concepts really fully without going through the formulas. Fair enough. Okay, so I think one of the most important points of the entire chapter is laid out right at the beginning. It's not a technical point, it's not a formula, it's not any of those things. They say, as with the methods presented in chapter 17, even in studies that ultimately require more complex analyses, methods that build on data that are stratified provide an important opportunity to gain initial insight regarding the data and associations. Moreover, it provides a means for the investigator to become familiar with the distributions of key variables and with patterns in the data that may be less transparent when using methods such as regression. All of which is to say, when we have this, this discussion in our department all the time, students and faculty alike have the tendency to jump straight into regression without doing strategy.
stratification. And stratification is where you learn to understand your data. Regression has this wonderful ability to smooth over places in your data where you don't have a lot of information or occasionally you don't have really any information. So I, I think that stratification is where you learn about your data. And we have this conversation all the time in our doctoral committee meetings, you know, that students and faculty alike have this tendency to jump right into the regression and then don't really understand their data well enough to understand why the regression is is doing what it's doing or where some of the problems are. So just curious your thoughts. 100% agree. Without looking at your data using stratified analyses in advance, I could never know what a regression is doing. It, you're right. It isn't the whole goal of regression that it's smoothing over things, right? You're, you're not able to see differences with the regression analysis. So I think you could probably demonstrate most intro epi concepts through stratified analysis. You know, and we need to do regression analyses in, in more advanced formats, but absolutely agree. Effect modification, confounding, positivity violations, exchangeability, all these concepts you can't see unless you do a stratified analysis. Yeah. And I th so you mentioned positivity violations. I think that's one that actually we don't probably emphasize enough. I mean, if, yeah. because if you're doing causal inference, positivity violation, you have zero probability of, of being in one of your cells. You know, you obviously have, have a causal inference problem right there, but you're never going to know it unless you actually look at your data. I mean, that's not totally true. You may pick it up in the regression stage, but you're less likely to. In my experience, the way you pick it up is when something goes really wonky in your regression analysis. And, you know, the the estimates are all over the place or, or changing with different covariates wildly. And so you need to go back and then do that stratified analysis. But I think a useful exercise when I'm teaching this concept is when you are doing regression analysis with 25 covariates, you need to be able to manually create cross tabs of those variables and make sure you have people in all of those cells because really that's what you're looking at when you're doing regression analyses. And, and I think that is often forgotten that you need to have individuals at every level within those tables in order to ensure that you don't have, have positivity violations. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this chapter, even though it may not lend itself so well to podcast conversations about the specifics, and why I'm so glad that a textbook that I think is kind of seen as the advanced textbook really doesn't skip over this, because I think it's A, so important, B, it's also these standardization pooling-based techniques are the simplified versions of mm -hmm. those regression-based approaches that you're going to use. They underlie everything. Yeah. yeah, so you want to understand those well before you move on to the regression-based approaches. Yeah, no, I, I really do agree with that. And I think it's critically important to be able to understand this because anyone, well, not anyone, but most people can get a regression analysis to run in, in your statistical program. You might even be able to Google, like, how do I interpret this coefficient or this effect estimate? But it, you really don't have a sense of what does it mean unless you, you consider, you know, the stratified version of, of that analysis. Okay, and so then they, they talk about these two different approaches, pooling and standardization. Do you have a preferred approach? And can you walk us through what the difference is between those two approaches? Oof. I would say I probably use pooling more than I use standardization. And that was actually one of my questions for you today, actually, is I don't typically see standardization as an approach in the epi papers that I read that often. And I wanted to know why that is, but we can come back to that in a second. So pooling. Pooling is when you have two strata, let's say, of a, of a variable, and you use something like a Mantle-Hensel formula to give you an average of those two estimates. We're going to come back to that because I do have a question 
question about that based on something that I read in the, in the text. But Oh, well, then go with the text, not with me, for sure. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, the text largely says what you just said, but I may be wearing my reading into things classes, but it says pooled estimates are usually weighted averages of stratum specific estimates. Usually? I thought they were always. When wouldn't they be? Yeah, no, I, I did read that usually and I did not know what it meant. So I, I can't really provide any insight. I was trying to think when would it not be, but I wondered if there was something beyond me that I am not sure about. That one kind of threw me because I have always assumed they have to be. I mean, I guess you could you probably come up with some weird example, but maybe maybe that's what they're referring to. But it kind of threw me a little bit. So the book talks about pooling and, and standardization as two ways of getting a summary estimate, essentially averaging together the information across stratas. But what they specifically say is a summary estimate derived under the homogeneity assumption is sometimes called a pooled estimate. So I interpret that to mean that pooling is the approach of averaging together the stratum specific estimate. So we've got an exposure and an outcome. We calculate some measure of effect stratified by a third variable. And then we want to pool together those two estimates to get an adjusted estimate. Right. If you're using the homogeneity assumption, which is to say you believe that these two stratum specific or two or more straight and specific estimates are effectively the same thing. Mm -hmm. they, they might vary a little bit, but just due to random error, then we are saying we can do a, a pooling-based approach like a mental Hensel. Whereas if we don't believe that we have met the homogeneity assumption, we think the estimates of the effect of the exposure and the outcome vary by this third factor, then we would, could use a standardization-based approach, which does not require homogeneous effects across strata. Okay, so some questions for you. This homogeneity assumption, do you think it's necessary for pooling of estimates? I don't know the answer to that, whether I think it's absolutely necessary. I guess I would say in practice, it seems to me that people ignore it, yeah. right? People do pooled estimates all the time without even trying to understand whether or not there is any... Hold on, I read something that speaks to this. Here we describe methods for estimating a single value of a given measure using data that is stratified while assuming homogeneity across the strata. So this would be the case of you're going to assume homogeneity. Mm -hmm. Then they say use of such methods does not require that one actually believes that the assumption holds. Right. So that's where I didn't understand. Yeah. They say their use can be viewed as a decision to simplify the analysis and the reporting of results based on the idea that any heterogeneity that is present cannot be accurately analyzed given its study size. Well, so what is the takeaway there? That, that seems to say both things that pool, if you believe believe there's homogeneity. Of course, we never really believe there's homogeneity. So you can pool even if there's heterogeneity. I think more what they're saying there is that you're never going to get risk ratio of two in one strata and two in the other. Right. Best case scenario, you get like 2.2 and you know 1.8 or something like that. Or maybe you get something closer because you've got a really large sample size. But what I am interpreting them to be saying is that at some point, we can just chalk this up to random variation, even if they're not exactly the same. And how much we're willing to let that go is really a question of how believable it becomes. So they say the rationale is reasonable as long as the homogeneity assumptions is not clearly contradicted by the data or other evidence and thus could be viewed as a potentially useful approximation. That sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, this is one of the number one questions I get when teaching about this topic is, you know, when you have an example that you have two strata, is six the same as three? No, those are probably heterogeneous. Is 1.8 the same as 2.3? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. This is a topic that I find introducing very challenging for students that are trying to have fixed rules about things. This is a, a definite gray area. This is a very much it depends. 
Okay, so while we're on that subject, were you the person when you were taking your intro class who was raising their hand and saying, tell me when I can pool and what, like you wanted the hard and fixed rule? I don't think I was because probably I was just too overwhelmed with the material to, to ask such detailed questions. But I, no, I don't think I was. But in practice, when somebody asks me these questions, I need to have a clear answer to give them. And I can't just say, I don't know, let me get back to you. Or I mean, sometimes I do say that, but on a question like this, I feel like I need to have a clear answer and there is no clear answer and it's very unsatisfying. Yeah, I think I don't remember actually but I suspect I was the person asking for that specific rule. And yet I'm also the person who is, when I'm teaching this stuff, is constantly telling students, you gotta be comfortable with making your own decisions here. (laughs) You will learn with experience within your particular field, what is acceptable and what isn't. And that's an awkward position to be in when you know you were the person who was saying, no, but just give me a rule. All right, let's move on a little bit. And let's, so, okay, so we've got these two approaches. You got your pooling and your standardization. We said pooling, you know, we're averaging together the straight, well, we said in both cases, we're averaging averaging together the stratum specific estimates, but in one case, the pooling-based approaches, we are making the homogeneity assumption. And with standardization, we don't. So with pooling, we're really probably talking most often about the mental Hensel, and that is what they go through in the book or spend the most time on. They talk about maximum likelihood as well. And then you've got your standardization-based approach. Now you hinted that you're not a either a huge fan of or user of, I can't remember, of the standardization-based approaches. I just don't see it that often. I don't see standardized risk differences, standardized risk ratios published often as the you know end product of an analysis am i am i reading the wrong things well i don't think that you're reading the wrong things i think most people don't publish mental hensel either that's fair yeah that's a good point right most people are going to move to a regression based approach and then the question is with regression are you doing a regression analog of stratification of the those are pooling based approaches i should say or of the standardization based approaches so your pooling based approaches i think of as most of the regression methods that we use and the standardization based approaches would be the weighting based approaches, the inverse probability weighted marginal structural models, or your I always get it wrong, G estimation, G formula, uh, the G formula. G methods. G G methods. methods. The G G methods. methods. We'll get to that chapter. Season six will probably make it there. Yeah. And so there I would say certainly the more commonly used would be the pooling-based approach regression models. Yes, I agree. But I think there is a movement in the direction of these standardization-based approaches. I think conventionally we see most of the pooling-based approaches, a covariate-adjusted regression model, but you just don't often see somebody saying my final effect estimate is a standardized risk ratio of of 1.3. So then the question is why not? So they talk about standardization here and they say, standardization provides a means to summarize epidemiologic measures, rates, risks, prevalences, or means across strata by taking a weighted average of the stratum-specific measures. The weights used in computing the weighted averages are referred to as the standard. So we're still doing a weighted-based approach, but now we have very specific weights that we're using. We're weighting to a standard population. And I like standardization. I first to admit that, you know, I'm going to move into a regression-based approach and only sometimes am I going to use the marginal structural model-based approaches. So I'm probably using pooling-based, stratification-based approaches more than I care to. But what I like about standardization is standardization to me follows logically from the potential outcomes model. It does, yeah. So they talk about standardized morbidity ratios. A standardized morbidity ratio is a standardized ratio that is standardized to the distribution of the exposed group. So to me, the value in standardization or standardized morbidity ratios is that you are basically following what I think 
of as the counterfactual format. You're saying, okay, I'm going to stratify my data by a confounder. If I can assume that that is the only confounder, such that I have exchangeability of the exposed and unexposed group within levels of the confounder, then I can ask the question, what if the exposed group had also been unexposed? So I know the risk or rate of disease in the exposed group. I can observe that. That's factual. And then I can say, okay, what if I take the same number of people who were in the exposed group and had made them unexposed? Well, if I can assume exchangeability within levels of the confounder, then I would assume that the exposed group, if they had been unexposed within levels of the confounder, should have the same risk or rate of disease as the unexposed group had. Therefore, I can just multiply the risk of disease that I observe in the unexposed by the number of exposed, that's my weight, and get the expected number of cases. So to, what I like about the standardization-based approaches is it follows so logically from the counterfactual model we're teaching students. I agree with that as a conceptual understanding, but this chapter doesn't, I would think, doesn't actually even use the word counterfactual in it. Why do you think that they're just sticking to this? Because I think it's very helpful to link those two concepts together. It's a good question. I would say in a lot of ways, this is much more of an applied chapter, although they, they definitely talk about some theoretical stuff. So it could be that they're focused on that. I mean, it could be that they don't see it the same way that I see it, I suppose. But at the end of the day, it seems to me that there is that advantage. And I should say, one of the things I like about this chapter is they do a really good job of walking through the weights in the standardization section. When they get to the mental Hensel, they do a good job of telling you what the weights are, but not what they mean. And I should say that could be, and I think is, because the weights don't actually mean anything. The weights in a mental Hensel, I could just be wrong. I don't know about it, but I don't think they correspond to any concept in the real world so much as they are simply designed to be precision enhancing. They are designed to weight towards the strata with the largest number of events and best distribution so that you get the narrowest confidence intervals. They're not based on some theoretical model like the counterfactual, though I, I would imagine you could probably relate it back to that. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that you have described exactly why they don't spend much time because the weights don't really mean anything. But with standardization, understanding the standard and therefore the weights that are produced is critically important to understanding the value of that method and, and how it works. So I, I appreciate that they go through that. And again, this is one of those times where I think there's a lot of utility in actually calculating this stuff by hand to better understand the concept. It, it, mathematically, again, it's not very complicated and you begin to see, oh, wow, that's how standardization works rather than just accepting it or, or memorizing the definition, even memorizing the formula. One step more than memorizing the formula is, you know, looking at data and saying, okay, where does this go in my numerator, denominator? Or what do I multiply? So it's, it's very helpful if you're trying to understand this concept to just use the formula, do the math to get the answer and you can follow along with the textbook. That's what I've done in the past. Totally agree. And, you know, again, that is so much of why I think it's so critical to spend the time learning those formulas. Again, learning them not for the sake of memorizing them, but for the sake of understanding what the components are so that when you, you get to starting to learn about those concepts like inverse probability weighting or marginal structural modeling, you understand what it's doing, that it is effectively a form of standardization in which you're asking these counterfactual questions, simulating what would have happened if your exposed group had also been unexposed. I just think it's a really important concept and a really effective way of teaching. So one thing that came to my attention when I was reading this chapter is how they introduce p-values as a potentially, I think if I read it correctly, potentially useful tool to understand whether homogeneity or 
I guess I should say, whether heterogeneity is present. And so can you help me understand this a bit better, why it's useful in this context? And we are trying so hard to move away from p-values in other contexts in epi. Okay, so we're trying to now say, okay, if, if we're going to follow the definition strictly and say we can only use the pooling-based approaches if we have met the homogeneity assumption, and we were students and we want to test for this, or we're just researchers and we want uh, some kind of a, a way to figure it out, we could use one of these tests for homogeneity. And the book chapter, they talk about using a p-value based approach here. So they say, in chapter 15, we criticize the use of statistical tests and especially the concept of statistical significance, which artificially forces a continuous measure, the p-value, into a dichotomy. The use of statistical tests is more defensible, however, when an immediate analytic decision rests on the outcome of a single statistical evaluation. I buy that logic. I still don't support it, but I buy the logic. So what's the logic? Yeah, the logic says the whole point of hypothesis testing, no hypothesis significance testing, was developed as a means for minimizing the probability of errors over the long term in cases where you were going to run experiments and use those experiments to immediately make decisions. And so it's not like what we typically do in epidemiology, where we build a body of evidence and then we pool all that information together along with everything else we know, along with the acceptability of things and people's preferences. And then we make a decision about what we're going to do about a particular hazard here. The way hypothesis testing was developed was you were in a situation where, let's say you're going to go out and decide which fertilizers to use in growing wheat. And you want to figure out what's going to work best. So you divide up some plots of land, you randomly allocate the fertilizer to the different plots, and then you see what happens, which one has a better yield. And then you immediately say, okay, after the results of that experiment, I am going to use that fertilizer all over this area. And then I'm going to move on to somewhere else. I'm going to do it again to figure out what fertilizer works best over there. Uh, hypothesis testing seems to be not unjustified in a situation like that, because you do, you're going to make a lot of decisions and you want to minimize the probability of getting it wrong over the long term. As we said, in epidemiology, that's not what we do. So we have good reason to be critical of hypothesis testing. But here you do have an immediate decision to be made. Do I use a pooling-based approach or do I use a standardization-based approach? And so the idea is you could use one of these tests for homogeneity, use a p-value of less than 0.05 as your cutoff, and use that as your decision-making approach. And I think that is much more defensible than just simply using p-values to decide what's important in epidemiologic research. I still don't support it though, largely because I think it's rare that we actually have enough power for these tests to be giving us good information about whether or not there is heterogeneity. We, we typically design studies based on main effects. Yeah, we are entering the world of big data. And so maybe there would be plenty of times when you'd actually have tons of data and can look at interactions and three-way interactions and whatever you want. But a lot of the time we really don't. And so I'm not sure these tests do anything more than provide you a little bit of a guide. They're underpowered to be able to detect heterogeneity should it really exist? Oh, there's a lot there. Okay. In that sentence, they talk about the use of a single test mm -hmm. is defensible. But we're never just doing a single test. You're never just looking at a single strata and one p-value. You're always doing that multiple times in any given study, right? My interpretation is the single statistical evaluation is in relation to the immediate decision. So there could be lots of decisions, which would necessitate lots of tests. It's that you need a single statistical evaluation for each decision. Okay. So how is that different? 
different than forward and backward selection, forward or backward selection, it, when you're determining which covariates to include in your regression model? Great question. I don't think it's any different from the standpoint of you are using statistical measures to evaluate something. I think the big difference there, though, is that model building in causal inference is about removing confounding, not about whether or not a variable that you put into the model is statistically significant. So there, I think forward and backward selection approaches are indefensible, both because of the statistical significance, but more because they're not designed to achieve the stated goal of causal epidemiologic research. So I agree with that second point. I guess I'm having a hard time distinguishing between using the p-value to detect heterogeneity or lack of heterogeneity and using the p-value to tell you, you know, your immediate analytic decision is, should I include this covariate or not? But I understand the second reason, and, and that's enough for me not to, to use it because it doesn't achieve the goal of telling you which is a confounder or not. But I think it's a bit of a slippery slope. And when students ask me about this question, is 1.8 different than 2.3? I don't volunteer, go ahead and use a p-value to detect this. I would like us to move away wholesale from this concept because it's too much of a slippery slope for me using it in one this little area, but not overall. I just think there's more helpful approaches looking at the width of the confidence intervals. Is there overlap with the confidence intervals? Are these meaningfully different, clinically different from each other, uh, rather than relying on, on the p-value for that kind of information? Yeah, so can we talk about that a little bit? Are these clinically meaningfully different, I think is a really important question. And yet, I also think it's one of those things that we default to because we know know it's the right thing to do, but we do not have an answer to the question. And I think part of that is because we measure things on relative scales such that it's very hard to know what is the meaning of the difference between 1.5 and 1.8 without knowing what the baseline is. 1.5 versus 1.8 could both correspond to a 0.0001 risk difference or 0.0002 risk difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. Small changes in the absolute measures. I think we say that to students. I know I say it to students. And yet in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but very few people can really answer that question as to whether something is clinically meaningfully different. The other way to think about it was leave aside clinically. If you knew that the relative risk for eating red meat on cancer, pick your cancer, I don't know what, if you thought it was 1.5, but I actually convinced you it was two, would that be enough to change your behavior? And I would not answer that question. I don't know how anybody else can answer that question. In part, it's subject matter expertise. But the individual is the subject matter when it comes to my decision as to whether or not to eat red meat. Yeah, certainly these all of these discussions are much easier and easier to understand when you're talking about the absolute scale. Because I think your point about the relative scale is very hard to understand without understanding the background risk. But I guess if you are a clinician scientist who treats actual humans, would any of these decisions, 1.5, 1.8, 2, would any of those change how you treat a patient who's in front of you? Would you give the drug? or would you not give the drug? I know that's almost an impossible question to answer, but those are the kinds of considerations that I think about when I ask the question, is this a clinically meaningful difference in outcome? Yeah, I guess I would say I'm not sure most clinicians are probably trained to be able to evaluate that. But on top of that, it's not as if we make decisions based on that number alone, right? There's the potential increased benefit that I might get from the drug, right? I might go from 10% chance of survival to a 15% chance of survival. That sounds good, but what if it comes 
comes with terrible side effects that's going to reduce my quality of life or it's going to be really expensive. And I you know, so all of these things are hard decisions to make, even when we limit it to just the numbers. I'm not even sure there we're, we're very good. I know we're way off topic here, but I, <laughs> I do think it relates to this idea of it does relate, yeah. trying to determine when we believe there is heterogeneity and when there isn't and when we believe that heterogeneity, even if it's there, is meaningful. Yeah, it's a philosophical almost discussion. It's, it's a conceptual discussion that underlies how important heterogeneity is in epidemiology. And, and that's a point that I think we skipped over a little bit in the beginning of the chapter, how they frame this so nicely as heterogeneity is something that we want to explore further. It's something that we want to understand better. It's not something that we want to pool away or adjust away because heterogeneity is so critical to understanding differences in exposure outcome relationships. So I think that these kind of, although it seems a little bit off topic, I think it, it circles back really nicely to the overall goal of this chapter, which is understanding differences in different groups of, of people or different strata within your data set. Yeah. And the way that was always explained to me was confounding is a threat to validity. And so you've got to remove it. Heterogeneity is a threat to inference. And so you don't want to remove it. You want to explore it. You want to understand it, which gets back to this idea of, okay, so standardization, you can standardize even when there is effect heterogeneity. But do we know what it means then if we are standardizing over heterogeneous effects? All we really know is that this is the effect size in some population, typically to the population of the exposed. But I don't know. It feels harder to know what that means. And I feel like even though you can standardize across heterogeneous measures, I'm not sure it's the best idea. And I think that's it's not done that frequently in practice in the real world. I was asking this question earlier. I think it's a useful tool to understand what's going on. Do we use it all that much? Not quite as much as we, we might. All right, last question, and then we're up against time. They end the chapter talking a little bit about attributable fractions. Mm. Do you use attributable fractions very much? I don't in my work. I'm scared off a little bit of attributable fractions. Same here. You know, so there was a, a couple of years, probably now 20 years ago or something like that, there were these big papers that came out about attributable fractions for obesity. And, and if you reduce the amount of obesity, you would save this many lives. And the challenges of interpreting those types of metrics and calculating them correctly I've been completely scared off of that whole topic. There are times when I even struggle to keep them all straight in my mind. You've got the attributable fraction among the exposed, the population attributable fraction. And I don't remember if it was in this chapter, but I certainly remember reading it in the previous versions of modern epidemiology. They would talk about the etiologic fraction. And there's all of these concepts that I didn't spend a lot of time on because they're just not something that I've used very often, nor do I even see them in the literature that often, such that I feel like I need to know them in great detail to be able to understand what I'm reading. I do think they get used in the public health literature, maybe less so in the epi methods type literature. But if you were, I don't read something like American Journal of Public Health every month, but I would imagine that that's where some of these these measures are more used. What do you do when you go to the beach? <laughs> I haven't been to the beach in a long time. And with my small children, I'm chasing after them. I haven't read a real book in a long time either, which is a problem. Mm. So I would imagine that in those kind of more applied public health domains, I would hope that they're using some attributable fractions, but I actually don't know off the top of my head. And I, I think there's a whole chapter on attributable fractions, or at least a, a big section of a chapter. Okay, and that's probably where they talk about the etiologic fraction. I, I definitely remember reading it either in this version or the previous versions. Yeah, exactly. I agree. 
Okay, last thing that I want to say. So just to give folks at home the behind the scenes, before we started recording this, Haley, you said, I didn't read the chapter before I proposed that we talk about it. And now that I've read it, I don't know how much there is going to be for us to say. And I wrote down, I bet that's not right. Yes. Because we have said this before, right? We say this all the time. We often think, how are we going to talk for 45 minutes to an hour about this particular topic? And then we have to cut ourselves off because there is, there's, there's a ton to say about these things. I really love thinking about stratification and standardization and pooling. And we're going to have another conversation about this with a guest. And I still think there's tons to say. Yes, there's tons to say, even when you're, quote, just focusing on the concepts, not going through the formula with your lovely formula reading voice that you had earlier. There's still tons to talk about. Square root. (laughs) Exactly. It'll put me to sleep. It's like a meditation, (laughs) mad reading formula to me. But yes, I am proven wrong yet again by by your wisdom about how much how much we can talk about it's not wisdom it's experience because i've said it to you in the past and then we've ended up having to cut ourselves off yeah so i'm glad we could talk about this stuff all right so for those of you who are not members of the society for epidemiologic research i strongly recommend you consider becoming a member membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting which is coming up in june in portland assuming we get this released before june which i'm sure we will but if it's after june and you're listening to this the upcoming meeting in where's the where's the meeting after that I don't know. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference, if you like that podcast. We think you'll like that one. And a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiological Research. We really appreciate you listening and look out for our next episode. And if this is after June, we will be seeing you next year, 2024, in Austin, Texas. Austin! Yeah, that'll be a good one too. And is that because we wanted to keep Portland weird and then we wanted to keep Austin weird? Yeah, something like that. We're going to learn how to be weird in Portland and then bring it with us to Austin. Well, Austin's got its own weird doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it definitely does. Yeah, exactly. All right, bye, Matt. All right, keep keep serious epidemiology weird, Haley. (laughs) Will do. I can always be counted on that. (laughs) Bye. Bye.